0: It has been a season. I've hugged my son. I hugged my son, but I wanted to hug your son. Oh goodness, I've cried about our future.
1: I had complicated feelings and arguments about
0: marching in a pandemic. And I literally tried to meditate away reality. I read some books. I got my senator on speed dial. But still, there is so much more work to do. That's why we're back. And this is Your Neighborhood. The The Season season of of Solutions Solutions with Hannah and Jackie. (laughs) This month just happens to be about what we get in our bellies, food. Yes, Mm -hmm. and I think all along the way, Hannah, it's just been, every time we take on a new solution, it's been like, layer that on top of what we just talked about, layer that on top of what Mm -hmm. we just talked about, layer that, and this Mm -hmm. one is no different.
1: And this one is one that I don't feel incredibly well versed on. So I'm so excited today that we are joined by Bailey, who has a bachelor's in nutrition and foods and a master's in sustainable food systems and as if that weren't enough she's also in training to be a dietitian and as if that weren't enough she's also doing some big things for our region so bailey thanks for being with us today
0: yeah i'm super excited this food conversations particularly in the area that we're in is sort of like bubbled right it was like not a thing and then it just ballooned into and and let me like kind of take that back not to say it was not a thing it's always been a thing but it's become a mainstream conversation to have, particularly in our community. So much so that we're talking about food apartheid, the policy Mm. behind food and what that means and what that looks like.
1: And just, I wanna just bring everybody into the conversation because you hear people saying food apartheid and food desert. And can you guys explain the difference?
0: So what I'll say is coming into the food realm during COVID is when it really got real right? And people were sort of, I feel like coming and saying like, let's really, really have a conversation with it. And because we have two food deserts in our area, I know I started doing homework and I was like, wait a minute, this is not accidental. (laughs) This, This is not like, let's, deserts naturally happen. And I started doing some homework and listening to some people in the field who have been doing this work forever. And I heard a young woman, she was like, no, this is food apartheid because there's specific policies, specific moves being put into place in governments, local governments, state governments that are causing this deprivation of food sources to happen. So if something's causing it, then something can fix it. And assuming that it's a desert, a desert, again, is something that naturally happens. This is not, it's not, it's not natural.
2: So, and food desert doesn't encompass everything. Like it doesn't encompass the race discussion. Food apartheid takes that to the whole next level and like really digs deep into these root causes. You can say food desert all day long, but it's like, that's not the root cause of what's happening.
1: Mm -hmm. I've heard Ron Finley, who's the gangster gardener who I'm a fan of, call it a food prison. Because he said if it was a desert, you would have a choice, and in this, there there is not a choice.
2: Yeah, and I think using the word "food desert" sort of erases people who were native to deserts. Also, that's like a whole other conversation to this. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't want to keep erasing people and cultures, and you know, so it's it's an important conversation to have.
1: So can you tell us a little bit about what got you into food equity?
2: Yeah, it's a loaded question. And I don't know that I can answer it completely, like fully. You know, I'm, I'm very privileged and everything that I've gotten to do in my life. I grew up in Texas, and I think my first real initial like front with food equity was when i was a nutrition major at a university in texas and our professors had us go out into these lower income hispanic neighborhoods i was 19 at the time and they wanted us to teach these young mothers how to cook for their families cheaply and i was like what like what do i know that they don't already know you know like they know how to cook the food that they're culturally accustomed to So it just felt wrong to me on so many levels. And I think all we had to give them were ramen noodles and some mixed greens or something. It was a really weird recipe and it just didn't feel right. And we did it to incentivize them to come to these cooking classes to give them vouchers for the farmer's market, which the kids were really happy to have like a class to come to. But again, it just felt off like why why are we doing this i mean if i look back into my life you know i've always had this complicated history of food i was a heavier set kid growing up bullied a lot and i sort of fell into nutrition with the wrong notion you know to like be skinny and this is what you have to do to look a certain way i think i started my first diet at like 11 with my grandmother and i've been in the trap for a long time. And I it, it is getting to food equity, I promise. <laughs> but um, I guess into, when I got into grad school, we studied the food system as a whole. And I sort of fell into this weird trap of eating very specific ways. And that's just the only way that you can be healthy if you eat this specific way, like eating local, eating only organic. And I realized, you know, health is completely nuanced. We have to have these nuances in this conversation. My health is going to look completely different than somebody else's health. And I'm also very privileged. And it was just just continuing my disordered eating habits, eating disorder, if you want to call it. Um, And then I had kids. And then I just started questioning, like, how are my individual actions actually helping to shape a better food system? And it's not. Me going out shopping does not affect somebody else in a disadvantaged community. And I often say, like, we're creating two systems here. One system is super extractive. It relies heavily on low-income wages. And then the other is just made for the elite. So I really started digging deeper the term that's always used and i go back to is our food system's broken right because it doesn't work for all not everybody has access to fresh food or transportation to get them to a grocery store and then i read a book by or a passage of a book by Miki kendall called uh hood feminism that discusses how soda in her community is shelf stable it's not going to go bad they don't have access to a grocery store. They don't have access to clean water. So you know what? They drink soda because that was all that they had access to. So then we get these Band-Aid solutions of, well, let's pass the soda tax because these people aren't healthy anymore and we can't trust them to make healthier decisions. So we're going to pass a soda tax. But that's a Band-Aid, right? So our food system isn't actually broken. It's designed this way. It's made this way on purpose. And then from there, these conversations led to conversations on BMI and another book by a sociologist named Sabrina Strings. She wrote Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And that was really my gateway into food equity in a non-traditional sense. Because many food equity programs target people of color and target BMI. And that's not actually the root of any of our food systems problems. You know, it was built this way, so we have to figure out how to create a new way now. And then the conversation always leads back to, we're going to feed the world. You know, like, this is what we're going to do. But that's not what's happening. (laughs) We have an overproduction or a surplus of food in our food system. Yeah, hunger is only worsening. And a lot of people will blame it on food prices and I mean, with the ongoing pandemic, we are seeing like a hike in food prices, but that's not the issue of why people can't afford food. And we have a lot of job wages that haven't kept up with inflation, and we rely on a charity model to feed people instead of creating systems that stick and that work right for everyone. So that's sort of <laughs> my introduction into <laughs> food equity. It's loaded. It's a lot. and I've had to do a lot of unlearning in the process. A lot of things that I learned in undergrad were not as what it really is. So I've listened to a lot of others. I follow a lot of people on social media. Let me let me ask you a question real yeah. quick
0: on something you said, not even ask a question, but sort of tap back to hearing you say, well, um, I can't think of the name of the author talking about pop being shelf stable, right? Yeah, the and then the broken system. I hear when I hear that I hear, all right, we have this product that we can we can keep on the shelves that will keep us hydrated. And then I hear the government saying, let's charge them for it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like not even and I think even how we do this work, it's like framing it, it was framed as well, let's help these people get healthy by taking more mm-hmm. money out of their pockets.
2: Yeah, and then on the the flip side of all of that, we have the sugar industry, who isn't getting taxed on any of this stuff, because they are technically the mega farms, the agro like the huge extractive farms, and they're getting subsidies. So at the same time, it's like, why are we taxing individual people when we should be taxing corporations? Corporations are the reason why we're in a lot of the environmental issues that we are. And it it, it comes from a level of trust. It's like, I don't trust you to make the decisions for your health. So we're going to tax you on all of this. And it's like, we have to get back to a place where people are able... And that's part of the food sovereignty movement. And I am not the person to talk to about food sovereignty because that is something that is coined by indigenous people. And it needs to be their definition and their topic to talk about. But it is the right of people to choose their food in their way.
0: I think that plays into the creation of the Tidewater Food Policy Council. Yeah. So that piece, like I hear, I hear policymakers making it work. One, continuing the cycle of taxing lower income people, because they want to make decisions for them. And in that, the first picture that comes to my mind is there's this white guy somewhere saying, I know how to make these people do what I need them to do while also making a buck.
2: Yeah. (laughs) That's
0: what I see and feel.
1: I have to just say, I think that there's also just a fact of, I am not denying any of the racism that exists in this and also, that it is by design that a lot of the people who are making decisions on this don't don't have a proper understanding. And so I just want to say I just think it's that moment Bailey when you were going in and told to educate these women how to do something that they know how to do. I feel like as I've been on my anti-racism journey and trying to unlearn the moments that I've been most ashamed about have been moments in time where I've been instructed to do something and I wouldn't have thought twice. Why am I doing this? Or, or I hope I would have. I hope I would have. But I can see myself going along with something instead of s- having a red flag and saying, this is messed up. Mm. Yeah.
2: And I didn't at the time. Like, I didn't stop. I didn't mm. say, oh, because I would have, like, gotten a bad grade and I would have, mm. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. <laughs> it was wild. Yeah, so it's an ignorant question.
1: But is bottled water
2: shelf stable? Yes, so bottled water is shelf-stable, but on the flip side, a lot of these communities are getting in trouble for using plastic. And, you know, uh-huh. so that, that's like a whole okay. other conversation. It's like, oh, well, okay. you're plastic polluting now, so. Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh, shame, shame, <laughs> shame. You, you're that's doing shame.
2: shame all the way around.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Um, and food is such an intimate thing. And I think back, my, just the other day, my mother was cooking oxtails. And she was like so angry because she went and bought these oxtails, and they're like $70 for just like a little pot full. And she's like, Do you know? You know, this was all this stuff we're eating used to be the bad parts. Lobster, bad, privy to pretty yeah. all this stuff. And it's just like, as soon as people that make it, particularly white people, turn it into mm-hmm. a delicacy, like we're paying more for the foods mm-hmm. that we love and We're traditional on.
2: foods. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing with like what we did with quinoa back in the day, you know, like and and now you look at like African countries who have actually grown quinoa and survived off quinoa. Now they can't afford quinoa. And it's like that was a, sh- a staple in their diets. What, yeah. So there's a lot of these issues that are tied up and we just keep I mean, like we have to get it together. Yeah. <laughs> so and you're trying and to we do have that. With the policy I'm council, to, yeah. so tell us about
0: the work of the the policy council yeah. that you're establishing.
2: So in grad school, I kind of looked at food policy councils in depth for my graduate capstone. I worked with the state based food policy council on some of the issues that they were having. I got to analyze all different food policy councils from around the nation. So it was a really cool insight to see what was working well. A lot of these food policy councils take on different initiatives and because all of our needs are very different in each Mm. each section of the country. We have different land for growing different things, uh, raising cattle. All of that goes into it. So I have always wanted to start a food policy council here. So I put out the call, Uh, you know, I, I had worked at a farmer's market they wouldn't allow me to accept SNAP at the farmer's market, which was really a shame because they had spent like a million dollars every month at various grocery stores, wherever, whoever would take SNAP, they could spend it at, but not our market. So I realized there's so many unseen problems that people aren't aware of. You know, just talking to some of my friends are like, what's a food desert? And it's just like explaining like, Yes, we may have a grocery store on every corner, but that's not the case for a lot of people in the U.S. They always think of like hunger as like a international thing for some mm. reason. So we do. We have a lot of problems in this area, and we have to come to a systems of solutions approach. I keep going back to that phrase. I read it in a community food systems assessment survey that was done, and it makes total sense. You know, we have to framework this as like a systems approach. So anyway, so I put the call out to the Tidewater Food Alliance is what we're calling it now. And I got a lot of really good feedback, way more than I ever could have imagined. And I guess I'll go back and explain what a food policy council is in case anybody's not familiar. But the Food First defines Food Policy Council as um, both forum for food issues and platforms for coordinated action. So that's really what I want to foster here. I want to connect the dots. We're very fragmented in this area on connecting these pieces. You know, we're all working at different things like hunger, farming, when really we need to come together because these are issues that have to be solved together. So. That's kind of where I was going with this. I guess I can talk about some of the areas we do have in this region other than farmers markets not accepting SNAP, which agriculture is a huge economy sector, especially in Virginia Beach. I think they estimated it to be 139 million, but the average Virginia farmer is 58.5 years old. And if we don't have a newer generation of people that are wanting to get into farming, that's gonna threaten our food security in the future. That, that's a huge issue that we have to think about. So helping support small and beginning farmers. And then w- with the pandemic, we see the yeah. supply chains hit really hard. A lot of people have gone to the local supply chain, but it's not accessible to all. Farmers markets are great. They're awesome to go to but they're not always offered at accessible times or days of the week. And also
1: living where we live and we're speaking hyper-locally and hope that if our listeners are elsewhere, they're scaling this to where they are, but where we are, if you're connecting directly with your farm through community-supported agriculture, I've had instances where farms have flooded and lost yeah. their, lost everything for the whole season. So even if you are trying to support that farmer, like what's it going to take to get that going again. And that's even if you're in the privileged position of being able to front money to a farm for food later that summer. But with flooding and with climate change, it's becoming harder and harder for that too. And just since we were talking about environment last month, I wanted to bring that in as it directly relates to what we're discussing today.
2: Yeah. And I hope to have various work groups discussing some of these, like uh, some that have come up or like a food economy work group you know, really talking about what it's going to take to get these small farmers and mid-sized farmers in our region to be able to scale up because scalability is a huge topic. You know, like if you go to a grocery store, a lot of the produce coming from the shelves and shipped all across the country, they're coming from larger agro farms because they have the scalability to be able to do that. Some of our small farmers don't have that and we don't have a middleman per se to really like help distribute that for the small farmer, small and mid sized farmers to scale up. So it's like a whole nother thing. So we're gonna do the food economy, we're looking at food and nutrition work group, um, a food equity work group, and then environmental impacts work group. So looking really like at uh, sustainability, soil health, all of those. Issues that goes into farming.
0: Part of this too is bringing people in the conversation that are affected. When we talk about like farmers, I think about how, I think it today. There's like over three million farmers. I think in the United States. I think I remember reading in only over a little over forty, forty thousand or so are black farmers, which is yeah, yeah. It's like oh, in the past by design. By design, right? In the past century i know i read in the past century that we've lost a yeah. million black farmers yep
2: and that a was million. due to that was a, <laughs> a lot due to the civil rights movement you know usda said hey if you're part of these civil rights movements you're done we're not giving you funding we're not getting no money you're
0: not getting anything but we did see this past march that there was like five billion dollars yeah. stimulus in for the black farmers but I say that because in all of this, right, when, when people think farming and they think, you know, coming around the policy for food, oftentimes we're seeing mm-hmm. one face, right? Like, and to, to Hannah's point, it's like, am I the per? like, yes, I should be here, but also how do we make sure that, I'm, I'm and I'm using black folks as an example because that's where I'm coming from, but really this is a, it's a dollar issue. It's an economic yeah. issue that people are in the room that are affected and influenced and that we're looking at these sorts of things like the census is messed up so now like we we know that we're going to be getting data based off that we have to be really intentional about how and who we move in the room with from the production Mm -hmm. to the processing to the distribution to the consumption point to your food policy councils point. yeah
2: and i was just in a conversation last week and i'm not gonna like say names or anything but uh it was interesting because they were talking about some Hispanic farmers in Virginia, who have acquired land and farm, and they go out to farmers markets. But when they go out to farmers markets, they don't get customers, so they have to hire white people in order to get more funding and money at the farmers markets. So that's like a whole nother like issue that we have to talk about. What? Yeah. So. It's interesting to be
0: so directly affected by these things, but not allowed right? to be connected.
2: <laughs> and most of our practices come from indigenous and black and Hispanic farmers. Like, I don't know why we have adapted to this holier than thou white farmer image, you know? And I, and I know it's prevalent in our system. 97, I think, percent farmers are white. And that's fine if they want to keep farming, but we have to create more advantages for people of color to go into farming and yeah. and own land. That's like a whole other piece. And own o- their own piece that's of land. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can always point to
0: one specific thing if we need to when we're trying to figure out why things are not fine, why they are the way they are. And that's white mm-hmm. supremacy. Yeah. When it all boils down to you own land, you can vote, you own, you're white, you can vote, you know, like down to how we mm-hmm. create policy, how we select who's gonna be in those positions. It's, that's what it boils down to and we're all influenced by it. So it, when it becomes unacceptable to the masses, like to, to most of us, then I think we're gonna see some, some changes where we're not saying that 90% of the farmers are white. We're saying that, Black and Hispanic farming has increased by 10%, yeah. right? Like when we're saying those sorts of things, and I'm, I'm hoping that the work that you and other folks choose to do pushes that policy forward, because that's what it's gonna take to get us out of here. Yeah. Policy and money too, right? Like <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. funded policy. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So you have gathered the stakeholders and then are breaking them down into these subsectors to form work groups. And then what next steps exist and how can listeners be involved? So
2: I, I wouldn't say we're at that point where we're broken down into all of these different five subcategories yet. I really am trying to get a community food systems assessment done here. And we're trying to figure out how far out. So right now we're sort of in phase one. So the phase one is we have an assessments committee and we have a newsletter committee. The assessments committee is really going to define parameters around what we're looking at for the community food systems assessment. Uh, Piedmont, I always say it wrong, Piedmont-Triad Regional Food System has just put together an incredible community food systems assessment looking at their 11 or 12 counties. So I really want to emulate something like that here. And they take a really awesome approach because they want to look at justice for communities that are furthest from it right now. And I, I really think that that's the approach that we we need to look at and take. Um, so we've got the assessments committee that's brand new. We're gonna start talking about that and hashing that out soon. And then we've got the newsletter committee. So um, people who wanna be informed like on regional food systems happenings can either contribute by sharing news articles or job opportunities or volunteer opportunities to that newsletter and that will go out every month. And then phase two, once we get our community food systems assessment done, we'll move on to phase two because that will really open up the foundation to where our organization goes. Really looking at the unmet needs and creating those each individual work groups based on the unmet needs to tackle it head on. So if listeners wanna get involved Either they can sign up to come to these meetings. We're doing it every other month on the third Wednesday at nine thirty, and I'll put the, it's all over my Facebook and everything. So I'll I'll send out reminders, and I'll, I'll probably start embedding those videos and the discussions that we talk about on Facebook so people can watch it whenever they want. And then if they want to get involved with the different work groups, once we get that going, it's open. We want the conversation. We welcome it.
1: And we'll share your information over on our page, too, on all of our social media so people can have access by following your neighborhood.
2: Awesome. Oh, and then we do have a website, highwaterfoodalliance.org. Last time we talked, you said
0: you sort of had a fire, like you had an epiphany and you got to work on a specific aspect. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: So, I mean, just like farming, just like we talked about representation of what a farmer is today in America, it's the same thing for the field of dietetics, 95% white. And I think if we really want to get to A place of trust in like medical communities, dietetics communities, especially going out into these food apartheid and stuff. They need the right representation. You know, they need more Black dietitians. They need more Hispanic dietitians. So there, there's a lot of issues with that ongoing. I was looking at. I think there was a study on historically black colleges and universities and how they've lost a lot of their funding from Eat Right, which is our American Academy of Dietetics, where we get certified to actually have a program in dietetics. In Norfolk State, one of them. You know, they've lost funding throughout the years. And I think that it's like a 10%. I'm going to quote it wrong. I'll, I'll just send you guys the exact percentage of black dietitians that have actually Decrease from like 1998 to 2000s. We've got to address that as well. Why does that matter outside of trust? That's what I'm
0: like, okay, yeah, you want to see somebody that looks like you telling you sort of the things you knew, but why does even having representation in dietetics matter outside of the trust
2: piece? That's a loaded question. And I don't know that I'm the right person to answer that because, you know, I am white and I don't want to speak for anybody, I guess, too. Um but i mean it's important because it's a credentialed field right and if we don't have that piece i think it's easily it's easily susceptible to fall into this pattern of like what white people eat is what we should be eating for health for example i follow this lady who has a phd on instagram she runs the black nutritionist And she talks a lot about decolonizing your plate. She talks a lot about, you know, like our traditional foods are important. And I think that the field of dietetics has sort of gotten away from that traditional food stuff as being healthy. You know, rice and beans are healthy. Rice and beans make a complete protein. So why are we telling people to stop eating rice? Um, And I think that in the field of dietetics, We've got to have that representation because it's just it's just sort of taken off and like, oh, eat egg whites and whole wheat toast, and that's what makes you healthy. And I was in a class last semester and they talked about, they wanted us to pretend like we were lower income, which I totally rolled my eyes to. And they wanted us to come up with something that we could eat from a corner store And you should have seen the responses from all of these dietitian majors. And I know they don't know what they don't know, but they were like, well, I would choose whole wheat bread and peanut butter. And I'm like, if you're going into a corner store, most likely you're not going to find whole wheat bread. You're going to find nachos and, you know, cheese and, and you're going to make the best of it. And that, and that's what it is. Um, so it's, we make a big deal about healthy foods and I feel like I'm just jacking this all up, <laughs> but no, uh, no, no,
1: no. it it brings me to the idea that we don't just eat only for nutrition. Yeah. We eat for nourishment. It connects us to our roots and our history and it connects us to each yeah. other. And some of my fondest memories in my family are, are around food. So to disconnect people is more than just a health concern.
2: Yeah. And I think we also eat for joy as well. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, uh, and I talk about this a lot with like, at some point I'll go into like the eating disorder field. I think, um, just the way that I looked at food when I was younger and the way that I'm like, I raised my daughter when she was younger. Um, I created this like restriction of sugar at some point, And now it's like, uh, what am I doing? Like there's a statistic out there that you're 245 times more likely to develop an eating disorder than type two diabetes as a child now. And so these are some problem areas that I don't think that we actually like look at because of the way that we've conducted ourselves um, in the field of nutrition. And I guess it goes back to BMI. Um, it was created in the 1800s by a white male mathematician, and it was never meant to be used for an individual health statistic. Primarily, our studies on nutrition are conducted on white males and white females. You know, So there's not enough diversity in a lot of our studies right now on a whole a range of people so yeah so we got work to do got work to do we got work to do
1: i want to say one last thing speaking of diversity and joy and follows on instagram i found this woman that i just love she's called the black forager yes, that's her handle on i follow instagram. Her. she's
2: amazing and
1: she finds she's a forager so she finds food and she has the education to do that safely and she shares so many different tips and she's such a delight and such a joy and so i just recommend that as we're on the food section right now
0: you were talking about decolonizer plate Mm -hmm. that's
2: dr kira
0: yumby Yup. i I don't
2: know if that's how you pronounce it but yes that's her dr kira she runs the black nutritionist her instagram handle is incredible um Right, she so it's at black um dot nutritionist dot nutritionist yeah. uh,
0: and then you've got the other woman with the mexican-american um decolonize your diet diet is hardenex hardening yeah that's j-a-r-d-i-n-e-r-x hardenex i think hardly Denia.
2: and the black forager is alexis nicole wow uh, she, yeah, See? she's incredible. I, does half the stuff she eats, I was like, I had no idea you could even eat that. <laughs> so,
0: so we can use our online teachers. We can connect to people in our own communities that are trying to get to this work. We can call people in, asking at least for me because I'm a lot, around a lot of, a lot of little chocolate faces. I've started asking about, not just who they they want to be when they grow up, but like talking about other things. So we've got one that's like, I want to be a chef. So now I can say, well, have you thought about nutritionists? Cause girl, you know, you like, she likes to tell people what to do. <laughs> 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 uh, so, you know what I mean? So broadening the scope of what it means to have an area of interest. Yeah. You know, you love food here, are all the many things you can do with food. Yeah. You know,
2: Mhm. Mhm. and there's so a lot of
0: chocolatier. <laughs>
1: well Bailey I'm so appreciative I actually felt a little shame in my ignorance about this topic you know I live in a neighborhood where there are groceries you choose which grocery Mm -hmm. store you're going to go to Mm. so I feel so disconnected from the problems and I don't want to make it anybody else's responsibility to teach me what's going on but but
2: Something's got to give because I want to be involved and I want to move forward with this. I think a lot of this conversation is sort of being uncomfortable because we don't have all the answers. I think my reservation on starting this food alliance was because I don't have all the answers. Like I'm still constantly looking and trying to figure that out part of the process we are so
0: grateful for the time you've given us and for the work that you're putting in
2: thank you Mm -hmm. thank you i mean it's a community effort and thank y'all so much for having me on here this was awesome
0: all right you've been listening to your neighborhood and as always
1: give us a like a rate subscribe review tell your friends and join us on social
0: stay open stay curious and make it a great day closer to history.